Oh, good morning, church. It is good for us uh, to be together on the Lord's Day, to rest, uh, not just physically, but spiritually together. I imagine maybe some of you are expecting, because of the tremor this morning, we'll have to change the message and look at Revelation chapter 6. The bowls of wrath are here. I'm sorry to disappoint you. (laughs) We're just going to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, So come with me to Acts chapter 12. And picking up right where we left off last week in verse 25. The only change is that we're not going to go all the way to verse 12 as I had originally planned. But we're going to end this morning just at verse 3 of chapter 13. So Acts chapter 12 from verse 25 until chapter 13 and verse 3. Let me read for you the word of our Lord. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manain, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is God's word. Well, in in the life of every church, there comes a time... Uh, where the church has to confirm what kind of church they will be. This could be a time right at the beginning of the life of the church or somewhere in the middle. Um, There's a time that comes where the church distinguishes and says, this is the kind of church, this is the kind of people we're going to be as we walk together. Now this proposition assumes that there are different kinds of churches. And I think everyone can agree that churches indeed are not the same. There are churches that decide to build their ministry on the personality of the pastor. Everything in the church centers around the pastor and his gifting. There are churches who build themselves around a certain kind of music. Our brand, who we are going to be, is this kind of music. And so this is the church that we are. We're going to be known as a church that makes music and makes this kind of music. There are churches that are built on a brand. The brand, of course, could be the name of the pastor. Think of the reformed celebrity pastors that you like. But the brand could also be a subculture. You know, we're, we're the young church. We're the you know, exciting church. We're, or we're the old traditional church. Or we're the liberal church progressive church or we're the conservative church there are many ways that churches build themselves around a certain ethos this becomes the way that the church is and how the church breathes breathes and lives this phenomenon of course is not new of churches building themselves around a certain kind of thing it goes all the way back to the first churches of christianity 
from the very beginning of Christianity, churches took on different personalities, different temperaments, different emphases, and therefore were very diverse. Now, at base, having different personalities and having different temperaments is not wrong. It can be neutral. But I think we can agree that there are more excellent church ethoses than others. I think we can all agree that the temperament and the activity of the Macedonian churches in the, book of, in the New Testament is more excellent than the temperament and activity of the church at Corinth. Corinth was full of personalities and people quoting their favorite preacher, while the Macedonian churches, the Philippians, were all about the mission and sacrificing so that the mission gets done. This, of course, is not my assessment. I wasn't there. It's Paul's assessment in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and in Philippians chapter 1. In chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, the Lord Jesus clearly shows that there are more excellent attitudes in churches than others. While he finds fault with the Ephesian church, he does find fault with them. They've left their first love. It is obvious just by reading his letter to the Ephesians that the Ephesian church is not as in the doldrums as the church at Sardis. All of this, this this thinking of different churches and their different ethoses and, and how they are, all of this comes together in the text in front of us. The church at Antioch, which was born in chapter 11, we saw that two or three weeks ago, here in front of us takes an ethos and a way of being that is radically different to the attitude and the ethos of the Jerusalem church to such a degree that they now become the center of Christian missionary activity that God wants to preserve throughout the ages. We're effectively done with the church of Jerusalem. We'll see them for a little bit in Jerusalem chapter 15. But we're done with the church of Jerusalem now. Now the missionary activity is centered from Antioch. We're done with Peter for the rest of the book of Acts. We'll see him just for a second in Acts 15, but really now we're done. We're now focused in the, the book of Acts. That Luke now focuses on the missionary activity that was sent out and supported by the church at Antioch. While Jerusalem still remains Christian headquarters, that only is true in a political sense. The real power, the real energy, and the advance of the global church is now centered in the efforts and the works of the church at Antioch. I want you to note a few things before we get into this text so you can see this. That Jerusalem church was given a mission to take the gospel into the world. But remember what we have seen in the book of Acts. At each point, other than Jerusalem and Judea, at each point in terms of taking the gospel forward, we've only seen them reacting, not acting pushing the gospel forward. We've only seen them reacting. The gospel does indeed go into the world, but not at their initiative, but at God's initiative, and God has to drag them. Remember how, for example, how the gospel ended up with the Samaritans? It was because of persecution. And Philip 
had preached there as he was taken by the Spirit and dropped there. And then he preaches there uh, to the Samaritans. And then the church reacts. What are we going to do with the Samaritans? And so they, they send uh, Peter in reaction to what the Lord is already doing. They did not sit and plan a course for how is the gospel going to get to Samaria. And you remember, of course, in Acts chapter 10, what we saw, the Lord had to drag Peter to take him to the edge of the earth so that he can bring the gospel to Cornelius and his family. He was not going to go of his own initiative to bring the gospel to Cornelius and the others. The Lord had to even send a vision to Cornelius to have to bring Peter over, which is not how evangelism is supposed to work. You don't, evangelists mustn't wait for God to wake somebody up to come to him. Evangelist goes. Peter didn't do that. And of course, we've already seen that even as they were scattered more through the, through the Jerusalem church, as they were scattered through the, 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 the persecution of Stephen, they were going and a lot of them were just preaching to Jews. They had missed the point that the scattering should be helping them to, in, to initiate churches even among the Gentiles. And so here in our text, uh, the Lord speaks to a church, unlike the Jerusalem church, here in our text this morning, the Lord speaks to the church and they freely send out their leaders to establish the work of the gospel. The Lord had spoken to the church uh, at Jerusalem, but they did not react this way. They did not immediately respond by sending out their leaders to go take the gospel where it needs to go. What we have seen so far is that the Jerusalem church is very comfortable at this point to exist as a branch of Judaism. But here in Antioch, the church sends out the first Christian missionaries to go into the world amidst danger and paganism and to seek out those whom the Lord has appointed to salvation. Antioch chooses to be a church that actively pursues the conversion of the world to Christianity. They organize and put resources together to ensure that the mission done. And I think this poses a question for us this morning here at Heritage. What kind of church do we want to be? Have you ever thought about this? What kind of church do we want to be? What kind of church do we want to be 11, 12 years in existence now? What kind of church do we want to be? Some of you are here because you want reformed preaching. That's good. But is that enough for us? Just to be known as a church that has reformed preaching, is that enough? Some of you are here because you have enjoyed community life here at the church, and that is wonderful. It's wonderful that you've enjoyed community life here. But is that enough? Is that enough to say that we're a church that is a comfortable church where community is great? Is that, is that an, enough, a good enough headline for us as a church? Some of you are here because you love the fact that no one here is promising you health and wealth. But is it enough that we are a church that does not pickpocket its members? Is, that, is the bar that low? Come to this church. No one's going to pickpocket you. Is that, is that enough? Come to Heritage. No one's going to try and take your money here. Is that really the headline we want? Some of you are here because you feel like this is a place where you can grow spiritually. And that's, that's great. There's... Many older saints to learn from, and that's wonderful. But again, I ask you, is that enough? That this is a church where I can grow and, and grow and learn? Is that, is that the end? 
Notice all of these things that I'm mentioning are good things. Things without which, if we did not have them, we would not be healthy. And I'm certainly not attempting to make anybody feel guilty for loving these things. We, we need to love these things. These things are good. These things are given to us by the Lord. We want to be in a church where we can grow. We want to be in a church that has good preaching, etc. But this morning, I believe the text in front of us challenges us to be more. Particularly, the text in front of us challenges us to be more missional. To sacrifice the best of what we have so, so as we can see the gospel grow elsewhere, not here. Elsewhere. Now, in approaching a text like this, one has to be careful. Luke does not write this with the express purpose of telling churches that they ought to be like Antioch. It's not the purpose of why he's writing this. There's nothing like that in the text. The main function of the text is to tell uh, Theophilus and us of how the setting apart of Barnabas and, and Saul took place and how is it that the mission of the, of the church now was centered at Antioch. What are the events that led up to that? That's the purpose of Luke in telling us this. But in telling us this, Luke gives us information regarding the Antioch church that we would be foolish to not pause and meditate on their example. There are two things that I want us to notice from the Antioch church this morning. First, I want us to notice their recognition of gifts. And second, I want us to notice their sensitivity to the Spirit's leading. Number one, their recognition of gifts. And second, their sensitivity to the Spirit's leading. Well, first, let's look at the first heading. Their recognition of gifts. Verse 30, uh, chapter 30, uh, 13, verse 1. Now there were in Antioch, uh, in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manain, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And there, of course, in verse 25 of chapter 12, we read also that at, uh, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now remember when and how this church was formed. The saints were scattered and the Hellenistic Jews preached to both Jews and Gentiles. And then this church was formed. We saw that in chapter 11. And when Barnabas comes here from Jerusalem, he brings Saul. And, and with their ministry together, we are told that the church grew mightily. We saw that in chapter 11. After, after he went to fetch Saul, the church just kept on growing more and more. Now, when the church grows, of course, when the church grows, needs grow. Ministry is created by the fact that more people exist. And as the church grows, hands are needed to manage the growth. And the Lord throughout Scripture always provides gifted men and women to participate in the mission at different points when different needs arise. In verse 25 and in verse 1 of chapter 13, we are told of six gifted men, four of which are brand new to us in the story. We already know Barnabas and Saul as the leaders of, of the church here, of course. But here now we're introduced to John Mark, Simeon Niger, Lucius, and Manain. There are two things that are worth noticing regarding these men that we're being told about here. And I think there's a reason why Luke is pushing this in our faces. Why is he giving us so much detail about these specific men? Two things. Number one, they are a diversity of gifts. 
They're not the same gifts. They are a diversity of gifts. John Mark, there in verse 12, appears to be an assistant. He is not a preacher, but rather a faithful brother that Barnabas and Saul saw fit to bring with them to Jerusalem to assist them. Even later, look at chapter 13 and verse 5, we see that when, when the church has sent out Barnabas and Saul, he does not preach, but rather he is called an assistant. His role is there as one who assists in the work of advancing the church. So there's a gift here of assisting, of fortifying, of working alongside those who preach for the sake of advancing the gospel. And then these other three are teachers and prophets. So we're not told between Simeon, Niger, Lucius, and Mane, and who is a prophet and who is a teacher, but it's Luke rather just lumps them together because they were all having the speaking gifts. The prophets, of course, in the early church, um, in the early age of the church, had the function of both building up the church with doctrine and foretelling in a unique way what the Spirit of the Lord was saying at that time. We've already seen this in chapter 11 when Agabus came and spoke. Whereas teachers simply build up the church by teaching the doctrine of the word. So here we have a diversity of gifts. We have an assistant, a man who is not perhaps gifted in public speaking or anything like that, but he wants to serve in the church such that that he's recognized as someone who is good to send out in a missionary work because he's such a great help. And then we have prophets whom the Lord has ordained among them to proclaim what the Lord is saying to the church. And then we have teachers among them who explain what the word of the Lord is saying. But second, it's not just that they're diversity of gifts. The other thing is that they are diverse in age, status, and ethnicity. Now, John Mark, that we hear about in verse 25, was a Jew. And what we understand is that at this point, he would have been a relatively young man because uh, John Mark lives a quite a long life, and much later, he's the one who writes for us the book of Mark. When you read the book of Mark in the New Testament, this is the Mark who wrote it. But here he was a relatively young man, and there's much more uh, with regards to his story throughout the New Testament that we hear about. So he's a Jew who's a young man. Simeon was called Niger, and Niger is the Latin word for black. At that time, of course, the word didn't carry the American baggage that it carries today. And honestly, you have to laugh at this. They are literally calling him the black guy. Like, <laughs> notice this. They say, Simeon was called the black guy. So how many black guys do you have? Like, here's, a, here's Simeon. The, he's the black guy. He's the one who, who teaches us. Um, well, this black guy might be interesting to us, perhaps for apologetics reasons. You know, if here those people who tell you, you know, it's a white man's religion, whatever, you can come here and show them, well, listen, at the beginning of the advance of the Christian church, there was one who was called literally the black guy leading the church in sending out missionaries. While he, must, he might be interesting to us, he's actually not the most interesting character in this list. The most interesting character in this list is Manaim. Notice how Manaim is described. He is a lifelong companion of Herod the Tetrarch. And that Herod that is spoken of here, of course, is Herod Antipas. 
who was the uncle of the Herod that we discussed last week. The word used here literally means that they shared the same wet nurse. It's a word that's used to mean they shared the same wet nurse. They were united together. They, from, from birth, they lived together. So figuratively, it means he grew up with Herod. This is, he was a bosom buddy with Herod, Antipas. The one who killed John the Baptist. The one who was involved in the trial of the Lord Jesus. He was, this is a guy who was buddies and chummies with him. And of course, because of that, he must have been very wealthy. And probably he was well learned. He must have been, you know, he grew up as a courtier in court. So he's, he's, you know, he's above everybody in terms of social status. And he was probably near the end of his life. If he was such a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, who's already dead by this time. Herod the Tetrarch ruled from 4 BC to 39 AD. He must have been very old. So he must be near the end of his life, while John Mark is relatively near the beginning of his life. And yet here they are, these people, all of them working together. All of them recognized in the same church as having gifts given to them by the Spirit. Diversity in age, social status, ethnicity. You know, if I were to describe these people to you, it would sound like the beginning of a bad joke. A Jew, a black man, and a rich aristocrat enter into a church. (laughs) Sounds like the beginning of a very horrible joke, doesn't it? But here they are. Together, working together, used by the Lord together. And the church recognizes them as having gifts. As a pastor, I'm frustrated at Luke for not answering a few questions for me. How were these men recognized as having these gifts? How were they recognized officially? What were the processes? What happened? Was there any friction? Was there any suspicion? What was going on? How did Paul and Barnabas lead the church in this process practically to set apart these men? The Holy Spirit is not interested in answering those questions here. But what he's, what he's interested in is telling us just these two things. Number one, recognition of gifting took place. And number two, their diversity was not an impediment to recognition. Recognition took place. You are gifted by the Lord. You are gifted by the Lord to bless us in these diverse ways. But the fact that you are different from me is not an impediment for me to enjoy the gift that the Lord has given. Recognition took place. These men were official teachers and prophets in the church, officers in the church, known and beloved. So if we want to be a healthy church that is used in the mission, we must be willing to go through whatever is needed in order to recognize gifts. And when we recognize those gifts, we must use them. We must see them used. We must appreciate them. The gifts are diverse and all of them have their place. Later apostolic teaching shows us a diversity of gifts all for the purpose of building up the church. That means for us as a church, we must be on the lookout for that next servant, for that next assistant, for that next deacon, next teacher, next counselor, next encourager, that next leader we need to be aware of and looking out for and encourage each of us in that direction. As a church, we must be on the lookout for women 
who among us who have counseling abilities and we must push them and officially recognize them. You have this gift. You can use it here in the church. Of course, the church, even in this time, we're not told here, but the church during this time created what is called the order, what became later as the order of widows. These were special women in the church who were known to serve and assist alongside the deacons. And they became the, the, the order of widows because of how prolific they were in their service to the Lord. Paul talks about them later. It means for us, we must be willing to go through the pain of what it takes to recognize gifts. So it means that some days you need to be able to accept bad preaching on a Sunday. Okay? Don't be so consumerist. We need to accept, okay, we're giving this person an opportunity. We think there might be a gift here. Now let's let this person fan it into flame. And if the person does, please encourage him. Okay? We're not so consumerist, but rather we are trying to encourage one another and say, maybe this is not the way you place you're supposed to be serving. And if you think that you have a gift, well, you have to submit yourself to the church's recognition. And if the church says, yeah, that's not your gift, accept it. It's okay. Not all of us are going to be the same thing. Some of us are going to be ears. Some of us are going to be mouths. Some of us are going to be legs. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, that there is a diversity of gifts. And so we must be willing to accept that there is a diversity. And we might not actually be what we think we are. What this means is that there must be some kind of way that we as a church are recognizing gifts that we as a church are going through being recognized and accept the church's opinion of our gifting. But the second thing that's here is based on, based on what Luke is telling us is that their diversity did not create an impediment to recognition. Now imagine, think about this. There's Jews here. And now there is the guy, Herod the Tetrarch, who's known to be buddies with him And he's going to be a leader in the same church. This guy's friend and his buddies and probably his social circle. These are the people that oppressed us. These are the people that caused us all kinds of problems in Jerusalem. And now I have to submit to this guy's teaching. I have to now hear this guy's preaching and have him encourage me when I know that that his friends have oppressed my people. The answer is yes. You see, the diversity did did not create an impediment. The diversity in social status and class did not create an impediment. They had a guy, they called him the black guy. So they they had to call him something. Well, you're you're Simeon, you're a black guy. You're very different from the rest of us here, here in in Antioch, uh, in Syria. But it's okay. We will submit ourselves to your teaching because we can see that you have the Spirit of the Lord. Isn't that something? Diversity didn't didn't create problems. Here was John Mark, a young guy, young man. And the church is saying, no, no, no. This guy just assists and works so hard when we are doing an important job as sending out missionaries, he must be included in there. He doesn't preach. He doesn't have that kind of gifting. But man... He is required in that work. And they send him out with Paul and Barnabas. Do you see how wonderful this is? There's no suspicion. The things that might cause an impediment, the things that certainly cause impediments in the world, 
the things that the world loses their minds over and all of these things that the world is always fighting over. In here, it did not create an impediment. Age, social status, history, all of these things did not cause a problem. And we as a church ought to be the same. In, here as a church, we have to be one, those who accept and those who acknowledge the gifting wherever it is. And not only that, but we must encourage it and help the one who has that gift to fan it into flame. So that's the first thing that we see with regards to the Antioch church here, is that they, they recognized leaders who are very diverse. The second thing that is worth noting for us this morning is that they were sensitive to the Spirit and they submitted themselves to the Spirit in the midst of a rotten generation. Read with me verse 2. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The church here seemed to have been in a particular special time of worship and fasting. We're not told why they were in this special time of worship and fasting. But it appears that they were uh, sensitive to the Lord's will. There was, there was something happening and they, they, they set aside food and they just spent time worshipping and fasting for we don't know for how long. It was a, 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 a period of time that was special for them. It wasn't a normal kind of every, every now and again fasting like the Jews would do. This was a special time because it comes together with worship. So it was worship and fasting. And when the word comes to consecrate Saul and Barnabas for cross-cultural evangelism, they lay their hands on them and send them off. Now, there are, there are a few things that are remarkable, remarkable about these two verses. Number one, their spirituality is amazing considering where they are. Antioch was the, largest, was the third largest city in the Roman Empire and was well known as a center for pagan idolatry and licentious behavior. Antioch was called Antioch the Great or Queen of the East or Antioch Orontes, Antioch the Beautiful. Really, most scholars agree that it was like the New York City of its day at the crossroads of the Roman Empire because it was right there on the coast of Syria. So it was a nice place where commerce was happening and people were moving through it. And it was a, 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 mess, a melting pot where East met West. It attracted a steady flood of immigrants from all corners of the Roman Empire for various commercial opportunities. But the big thing about Antioch is that it was a major center of pagan worship, particularly uh, of the worship of the goddess Astarte. The worship of the goddess Astarte is known to be one of the most horrific in ancient literature. Other than Molech, this is probably the is, this is really bad because it included sacred prostitution. So where women would sell themselves sacredly, it's called as part of the worship. Hence, when you hear Paul saying, why would you unite your body with a prostitute? He's talking particularly of the temple worship that was happening with, with people, with uh, the goddess Astarte, when he's talking to the Corinthians. The ancient critics emphasized the oriental sensuality of Antioch citizens wholly devoted to luxury, 
ease and licentious pleasure. Even just poets, even just the people in the Roman Empire, they all knew that Antioch is like, if you go there, you're, just, you're, just a, you're going to go there and you're going to find all kinds of nonsense. The pleasure garden, there was a place called the pleasure garden of Daphne, which became a hotbed of every kind of vice and depravity. Uh, Juvenal, a, a Roman satirical poet, writing in the second century AD, said this regarding the decadent morals uh, of his own place, because he was from there. And this is what he said. He said, Obscene Orontes, that Orontes is another name for Antioch, Obscene Orontes, diving underground, conveys his wealth to Tiber's hungry shores, and apologies for this language, and fattens Italy with foreign whores. This was what Antioch was. It was a horrific place. And yet, in the midst of that unholy place, of sensuality, luxury, and licentiousness, here we find these Christians worshipping the Lord and fasting. Isn't that amazing? In the midst of an unholy generation, God had made a people who so desired Him above everything else. Church, let me commend this example to you. Do not be found to be the same as the generation that you're in. Do not be marked by the same sins of your generation, of your people, of those around you. You see, at Antioch, they were stuffing their faces with luxurious foods. This church fasted. At Antioch, they were selling their bodies. This church worshipped the living God. This must be said of us, church. That when you weigh the sum of our culture's sins, we ought to live in a different way. When you think of your culture, think of your particular subculture. Or where you find your movie. Who are you to be? If we were to write about you a hundred years from now, this is the group of people that you are from. You ought to look different from them. There must be said of you that you were going in a completely different direction To the culture around. Now at this point, I am tempted to list a few of our culture's sins. But rather, I'm interested in leaving that for your own assessment. I want you to think about this. Your people, those who are your age, those who are your circle, your demographic. What are they known for? What what is their cultural movings? Are you the same as them? Are you just going the way that they're going? What can be said of them can be said of you. There's really no difference. How they live is how you live. How they sin is how you sin. You're you're exactly the same as everyone around you. There's, There's nothing that can be said that this person is different. Church, our task, wherever we're found, in whatever the space of the world that we're in, We must be found holy, separate, different. As the world stuffs itself, we fast. As the world seeks lust and licentiousness, we seek the Lord and His righteousness. As the sins that mark the men in our culture, 
and the men go in a particular different way, speak in a particular way, act in a different way, our men must be different. There must be a shining light, a city on a hill. As the sins that mark the woman in our generation, speaking in this way, acting in this way, this is what is normative for women in this generation, living here, working here, our woman must be different. Remember what the Lord Jesus said, you know, don't the Gentiles do that? We don't, we don't want to be those who are just like the Gentiles. We want to be set apart, seeking the Lord. So I'm going to leave this to you to do some self-assessment. The sins of your culture, the sins of your self-group, are you just lockstep with them? Or are you seeking with everything to be different? Like Antioch, be found different. The second and last thing remarkable here about these two verses is that they obeyed the Spirit and sent out their best. They decided to obey the mission at great cost to them. Saul and Barnabas, in human terms, were the heartbeat of this ministry. And yet, at the Spirit's call, they sent them out because they knew that the world needs to hear the gospel from their lips. I'll say this, church, we also need to be prepared to do the same. Our vision must be a global one. As a church, we must think beyond ourselves. How can we bless those up elsewhere? How can we be involved in gospel work elsewhere? It might mean sending out the best of our, what we have, the best of our people. It might mean that we invest in people here and invest a lot in them and then we have to send them out. And praise be to God. It might also mean that we have to give a lot. Maybe the Lord has called somebody somewhere else, and, but they just need support. They just need a church to hold their rope for them. We might be the ones who are called to do that. And so we must do that. As a church, we must think beyond just here, beyond just our church building. We must think, what is the Lord doing? And how can we follow it and support in that way? Well, church, even now as we come to the table, I want to say this, that this table that we're about to come to now is for those who have come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are in Christ, those who have this hope, those who have a hope that is beyond, that the Lord is bringing us to a, a healthy home. But for you who is here and you're not a believer, the table that we're about to have is not for you. And here's why. It's not for you because you have not been engrafted into Christ Having a separateness. This separateness, this set-apartness that we're talking about here is for those who have been drawn in by the Lord Jesus to Himself. If you are living your life being part of just the cultural norms, the cultural sins of your age, you have not been drawn in. You are not really walking with the Lord Jesus. If the Lord Jesus is not precious to you, then let the elements pass. There's no, there's no shame in that. Uh, the elements are for those who are in Christ. But I do want to talk to you, if you're not in Christ, that today is the day of salvation. The more you reject the Lord Jesus Christ and go the way of Antioch, your end will be what Antioch was. Up until we started the series, or maybe you read it in the Bible, have you ever heard of the place Antioch just in history? It's not there. Sin. See, sin always does that. Sin always destroys things. You hear about the Roman Empire? Not anymore. 
Sin eats itself up. It, 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 just, it brings destruction. And so if you're living in the same culture, you're living in the sins of the culture, and that's all you're doing, what do you think will happen to you? The way of Antioch will be yours. The way of the Roman Empire will be yours. Destruction and death. The only things that last are the ones that are set apart by God. And if you're set apart by God, your sins are forgiven in Christ by His grace and mercy. So let me encourage you to turn even today. Stop following the way that everybody else is going. Come to the Lord Jesus for life and the life that lasts eternally. Antioch will be forgotten. The Roman Empire will be forgotten. But those who have trusted in Christ, their names will last forever. Amen. Let's pray.